Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Morning, I'm David Deckelbaum of Cowan's Energy Team, along with Mark Bianchi. This is our next installment in Cowan's Energy Transition Podcast Series. Uh, today, we're joined by Talos Energy, an offshore oil and gas exploration and production company that's also engaged in the development of future carbon capture and storage opportunities in the United States, Gulf of Mexico, and offshore Mexico. We're joined this morning by Tim Duncan, who's the founder, CEO, and president and Robin Fielder is the EVP in, in charge of low, car, low carbon strategy and the chief sustainability officer. Robin and, and Tim, thank you both for, for joining us this morning and looking forward to talking with both of you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Maybe just to get the ball rolling here, by way of background, uh, I know that this, you know, looking at CCS was, it seemed like it was, it was born out of, uh, you know, an ideation process in 2020, 2021 on how Talos was going to get involved in the energy transition. Can you maybe talk about that process, why you started looking at, at different things outside of just sort of your, your core GOM production opportunities and, and maybe just the genesis of, of Talos's involvement in CCS? Yeah. yeah, no, that's great. And again, thanks for having us. Um, you know, look, Talos is a, is a company that's fairly young relative to other public companies. We've, we've been around 10 years, but 10 years ago, it was five guys and a credit card and, you know, some office space. And, and we raised some money and built a private company and made it through the downturn of 15 and 16. Ultimately, we went public through a reverse merger in 2018. Um, and then as we were entering in 2020, we made a big transaction. So I'm catching you all the way up to kind of pre-pandemic, over 65,000 barrels equivalent a day good balance sheet and we're heading into the pandemic. Now, most of our experiences on federal lands, Gulf Coast, conventional geology, and we came back out of the pandemic and obviously you saw a paradigm shift in what people wanted to see out of oil and gas companies, bigger companies, consolidation, a dividend, and we get that. And that's something that we're trying to build and grow on, on the oil and gas side. But you also saw a increased demand for transitional investments, for the decarbonization. And we looked at ourselves and said, look, as we try to grow the oil and gas side and do that as a consolidator in the Gulf of Mexico, is there any way to play in the decarbonization space? Is there any way to play in a low carbon, you know, kind of vertical business? And we looked at wind a little tougher on the Gulf Coast, you know, electricity prices are cheap, the wind doesn't blow as hard. And we started looking at CCS and we said, look, we've got all this seismic data. We have a ton of seismic data, 90 million acres of seismic, a lot of it from our heritage in shallow water. Now Talos generally is a deep water player now. But we have all this seismic, we all have, we have this understanding, we know the big landowners along the coast of Texas and Louisiana, we know the state regulators, obviously we know all the federal regulators, why aren't we playing in this? And then a, a project came up, which was the request for proposals right off of Port Arthur and Beaumont, uh, it's called the uh, Jefferson County GLO project with the General Land Office of Texas, and we decided to put some bids in on that, being very creative about thinking about CO2, thinking about how you'd model a plume, really understanding the geology. And we put what I think was a very thoughtful proposal in front of the state of Texas, and it was the prevailing bid. And it had a lot of bidders, had some you know players who you might think would be the obvious candidate that would be at bid, but they picked ours. And when they did that, 
that's really where we said, look, we can do this and we need to chase it everywhere it makes sense. And, you know, we have the emissions data, we have our seismic data, we know the geology, let's just work hard. So we started chasing projects and that leads us to where we are today. Ultimately, that lead, led us to, uh, you know, bringing in Robin, who's got a different experience in the value chain as a midstream CEO. So we've really built this out. So long answer, but just catching you up to kind of the beginning and the genesis to where we are today. No, absolutely. And, and appreciate that background, Tim. Um, you know, Robin, maybe you want to talk about, um, you know, what attracted you to the opportunity at, at Talos, you know, someone that uh, had extensive experience on the midstream side and, and, and why this all kind of made sense for you. Sure. Great. And thanks for having me again. My most recent role was was leading and running Noble Midstream Partners, which became part of Chevron in 2021. And after running integration there and taking a step back, deciding what I wanted to do next, it really was focused in and around energy transition. And as I began doing kind of my own evaluation of the space and figuring out um, for myself, kind of where can my existing skill sets and knowledge base really play in this space uh, where we've got some advantages and where it made the most sense to me, I independently came up that I thought carbon capture and sequestration was really what makes the most sense for a lot of both upstream and midstream players when you think about what we're doing in the subsurface and then gathering in order to get to injection for permanent storage, um, especially what we're thinking about proposing here is in saline aquifers, which um, conventional exploration and production companies know quite well as we drill through a lot of those, but it's just another reservoir that we can characterize and better understand. So on that journey, I happened to run across the, the Talos team and just had been seeing some of those press releases and seeing the, the quick speed of the team, the agility, the ability to kind of get out in front of this uh, was very exciting for me. So I was happy to join and come lead this team and help shape that. Uh, we've got, again, um, a team focused with calculated speed, but also really focused on kind of the customer and working in and around on what's that and emitter needs and seeing if we can contract and come up with solutions that work for everyone. Thanks for that. Maybe maybe Tim or, or Robin, you know, maybe you can just describe a bit, you know, the business model that you're trying to develop on, on the CCS side. Uh, you know, we, we can get into all of the, the projects that you have out there, um, but but maybe just starting at a high level, you know, the business model that you're attempting to, to build right now or that you are building right now and, and how you maybe see that differentiated from some of the other you know, CCS competitors along the Gulf Coast. Again, Talos started 10 years ago. The company before that was called Phoenix Exploration. And we were actually one of the bigger operators in coastal waters of Louisiana. Uh, we had assets in the coastal waters of Texas. And so we just have a, a real depth of familiarity with the geology and the operations and what we need to do to execute operationally, you know, kind of in shallow water and in those water depths. So it's, it's just, you know, if you will, a bit of our heritage. And so part of this is it's really interesting. We're going from suddenly being an oil and gas operator, which is absolutely who we are and who we'll continue to be, to also building a vertical that Robin's running that's really a service provider. But we're transferring the same skill sets. And that's that was what was so interesting for us. We've, we've got the know-how, we understand the regulations, we understand the operations, we can drill wells, we can move quickly, business development, something that we strive in, but we're offering something different and we've got to kind of converse with and work with a different type of partner. And that is an industrial emitter who suddenly goes, becomes a customer. And that's really the big differentiator. But I think for us, there just wasn't any reason we couldn't do some of the building blocks that will ultimately lead to interacting with that customer, which is get the right pore scrape space, know how to describe it, partner with midstream and really understand the engineering, 
you know, we're also used to managing really big projects. When we're in deep water, we're managing complicated multi-billion dollar projects that have multi years of planning. There's a little bit of that in CCS and we're not afraid to really offer and understand those engineering services and how we do it. And so I think that's something that, you know, we're comfortable in. I guess aside from the process familiarity of, of you know working with you know I think you point out like the contrast of operating offshore versus onshore and how much advanced planning is required and and you know detailed project orientation is there an inherent advantage to to doing ECS offshore versus I mean obviously the positioning of where you are along the Gulf Coast and the emissions profile there and and the number of industrial limiters there but is there an inherent advantage that you think you would have over some of the poor spaces onshore? Uh, look, I'll grab that one. I can offer some. You know, the, the, we've talked about this, which is interesting as an oil and gas operator. Hey, the geology doesn't know the coastline. There are certain formations and certain trends and certain age geology. And, and you know, when you look, go back however many millions of years in time, you know, it, it really doesn't understand in today's time where five feet in, you know, of, of shallow water or 10, 10 miles inland or 10 miles offshore. We're looking for three characteristics. We need really good geology, a good geological column with good porosity, good permeability that can accept the CO2 and it can get absorbed by the saline aquifer. So we need good geology. We need it to cover a fairly large area because we're trying to put away emissions for 10, 15, hopefully 25, 30 years. So you need it to cover a big bulk volume, a big area. And we want a lot of old well bores. If that happens 20 miles inland, totally fine with us. We've opted there and we can handle it. If it makes more sense for that to be five miles offshore, we absolutely get that as well. So I don't think we're trying to preferential, you know, be preferential to offshore than onshore. Just trying to be preferential for those three characteristics of geology, ultimately bulk volume and space, you know, and then and then lacking a, a you know kind of old well bores and old, you know, potential PA obligation to stay away from. That makes a lot of sense. You know, maybe that can dovetail a little bit into just a discussion around some of the projects that you have in front of you. I guess, how should you think about in the investment community, think about, you know, the, the differences between, I guess, your four main projects, you have two hubs and two point sources. Um, can you give sort of a brief description or overview of those and, and, and sort of tell our audience the difference between the hub and, and point source? Go ahead, Robin. Yeah, I'll jump in there. So when we're thinking about a hub, we're, think, we're talking about said over overseas an industrial cluster of emissions so you're going to have several emission sources it will require some sort of midstream gathering solution to collect all of those and get them piped to with the injection sites or in many cases it will be multiple wells with multiple monitoring wells um, this is great for scale so you can collect quite a few emissions and and build out a major hub as, as Tim was talking about we'd like to have a nice big continuous contiguous leasehold and so right offshore provides an opportunity, but we've also been successful um, onshore. So three of our four announced projects are um, have onshore sites. Uh, compare that to a point source where we're really talking about a single emission source. Uh, we're able to do, in many cases, do that right on site or right adjacent to. So your stream solution there is very minimized, which allows for lower cost and really short cycle time. So you've got some, some enhanced economics when you think about reducing that cycle time and upfront costs, uh, but obviously a lot smaller scale. And so we'd our vision is to build out a portfolio of these opportunities of decarbonization as with low carbon solutions, continue to maintain that first mover advantage. Again, really kind of be that partner of choice, whether it's with the end customer and, and kind of meet them where they're at and see what they 
the need, uh, which is our example with, with Freeport LNG doing that one source solution for them on, right there kind of in and around the fence line, or to, to attract new customers and even partners as we build out these hubs. So most recently we announced um, a partnership in the Port of Corpus Christi with both the Port and Howard Energy, for instance. So that's great where we um, align stakeholders that can help us with these projects. We um, engage the best places there for seeing and the viability of a long-term project in the sand region. Yeah. You know, when you think about these hubs, there, as you guys know, I mean, you're running a podcast on this. There, a lot of people want to be in the space, not just, you know, folks that maybe had some upstream experience. Obviously, there's captured technology. There's midstream players who want to, you know, can they use either their infrastructure or can they use right-of-ways? We, we recognize. So to make these work, we're going to have to pull in additional partners that can combine and put together really the best offering for wherever that addressable market is. And, you know, as Robin talked about, what we're doing in the River Bend area, which is along the Mississippi River, what we're doing recently announced in the Coastal Bend area, which is in, in Corpus Christi, those are nice examples of utilizing parts who are kind of local with the right infrastructure uh, so they can have the best chance of actually making those things go. Now, that might be a good segue in the, in the some of the questions that uh, we have around some of your partners. Mark, maybe you want to ask them some around uh, some of the partnership opportunities that they're pursuing right now. Yeah, certainly. Um, and I think um, there's there's the question of partnerships and alliances, but also just what your scope is within a project. So maybe before we get into the partnerships and alliances, can you just talk about, you mentioned you know the capture piece, which I don't think you're going to be involved in, but maybe Maybe you could talk about stream piece, which maybe you have some more involvement in, but just from a high level, define your scope on these projects for us. I'd say a lot of our focus, obviously, as a as a upstream EMP is going to be on that storage and monitoring piece. Again, having that expertise um, and set and the subsurface when you think about injection wells and understanding and characterizing the bore long term. But married to that, obviously, is the gathering equipment, getting getting everything up to pressure and ready for injection. Again, kind of in in the wheelhouse of midstream that's out both onshore and and on offshore platform gear. You as you move kind of closer back to the emissions, it, it'll really depend. I don't think you'll you'll see us designing our new capture tech inside Telos, uh, but we certainly have a technology team that's looking into all the different technologies, the different key players, um, and even the EPC contractors. Uh, so as we're coming to customers with a solution on the gathering and injection side, we can also talk about um, and be a liaison for some some opportunities on the capture side. And in some cases, when it's pretty straightforward and you've got a very pure CO2 stream, such as at Freeport LNG, as when you, when you think about separating off the, the CO2 from the LNG, um, that's pretty straightforward and that's an offering that, that we can help provide and, and contract that out and do that right on site. So I think we'll be a little bit bespoke on how we approach this, uh, but it's um, it's a great evolving space when you think about how to capture technologies as well. So as folks are deciding that they want to, to capture their emissions and have a permanent storage solution, uh, we're going to kind of be there with them to walk through those those opportunities. And in many cases, as we've described, uh, are a, a complete bundled solution when you talk about the midstream gathering piece and getting it into the mm -hmm. storage site. The um, So you have the point, one of the point source projects is Freeport, which you just discussed. There's another one, and then you've got the two hubs. What, what type of 
industry is is the other point source if you're willing to discuss and then within the hubs as you think about the opportunity set there what types of capture applications are you really focused on? What, what you know if we think about dividing up the 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 co2 molecules that are coming into the hub what proportion of industry are they coming from so our most recent announcement is for the coastal bin project partnership with the port of corpus christi and howard energy so Howard Energy's got an extensive midstream network there and is already connected to some of the industrial emissions in and around the, the coastal bend areas is the name of the region. And so what we'll be doing is we've got an option on 13,000 acres to go out and find that best place and just kind of test the, the pre-feed and viability of the project. So once we get that lease subscribed, we'll, we'll be able to talk a little bit more about that. But so for right now, we're talking about it as a point source, meaning we'll, we'll probably already be tied into some of that. It is expandable to kind of a micro hub or even larger hub over time. And that's our, our, our thought as we step into this, um, being able to lease some of the, the ports land onshore, it's a little bit more straightforward when you're talking about bringing in onshore equipment to do this. So it should be pretty easily to scale if we've got enough acreage that, that works and is contiguous and meets those three characteristics that uh, Tim mentioned earlier. Okay. And then on the, on the hubs, I mean, is it largely, you know, I don't know, hydrogen production that's coming off of a refinery and you're capturing, you know, someone's capturing CO2 and feeding into your system or, or is it power gen? Just any thoughts on the you know, high level uh, industry exposures? Yeah, that's a great question. We, we really need to get those anchor emitters announced. We haven't done that quite yet, but you bring up a great point and that's why we're really supportive and are hopeful to see the enhancements on the 45Q tax code. Because today there are, there are some sectors that are economic at the $50 per ton of CO2, uh, where you've got ethanol, ammonia, we've mentioned LNG, some chemicals, some hydrogen, and even some gas processing. But for many of the other harder to abate subsectors, like your other refineries and coal, cement, steel, even some of the gas power and other petrochemicals, they're, they're really kind of waiting for that enhancement. Um, and also, hopefully, we'll get direct pay with that, too, that'll allow those, those tax credits to, to be more easily uh, moved from, from owner to owner with less value leakage. Uh, so as, as we're waiting on that, we're having a lot of these discussions and some folks have already made the call that they want to go and do this. And as they're looking through their captured technologies, the thing that we're hearing is we need you to be out and ready in advance. And so we're, we're out putting together these stores, putting together our partnerships, and again, trying to provide that that bundled solution so that way when they make that call that they're ready to put in that capture technology, however that may look, uh, we're ready to go and, and, and announce those. Okay, great. Yeah, and I think we're going to talk about lead times in, in a little bit because um, that's certainly an important part of the project. In terms of the partnerships you have, so I'm aware of uh, the Carbonvert one and then Technip FMC, which is a company that we follow. So, so we're very aware of that one, but could you just talk to those? Uh, and then if there's any others that, that we should be aware of, um, just, you know, what's the nature of those, those agreements or partnerships and, you know, what, what does that other party bring to the, uh, to the agreement that that's really so beneficial? Yeah. Let me, let me jump on that because I think Robin just hit a point that's really <clears throat> actually critically important. First of all, you know, an alliance might be something where, you know, they, you know, one of these service providers has something that they can offer. It could be engineering services. It could be evaluation services. 
where they want some exposure to really learning about how to apply that in the CCS space. And frankly, we want a way to kind of stretch our capital. And, and, and Robin mentioned earlier, we've talked to a lot of emitters and one of the, you know, we got to understand that we're not, this isn't risk-free for us. You know, we're going to go drill some stratigraphic tests and move along our, our EPA permits. And, you know, and that is in anticipation that there'll be a market there. And as Robin mentioned, you know, on the 45Q tax credit, there's still some work to do for some of that addressable market. So, you know, having an alliance partner, figuring out kind of how to stretch your capital program, bring them in, let them, you know, also take some risk alongside of you makes sense. Now, on the partnerships, that's where you're really talking about somebody who's going to have an equity stake in the project. And so as you get these things closer to FID, even if we were to go out and grab some poor space and what we think is a very good store, that's not going to be the partnership when you get to FID. You're going to have to bring someone else in the value chain who wants some exposure to the project. And again, you know, so I'll give you a couple examples. Carbonvert was a group that, you know, had some experts and, and had been in this space before. Uh, you know, we were just getting started and working on that first bid off of Jefferson County. And we, and we leaned on that expertise for that particular project. And then I would anticipate as we get closer to FID, you'll probably see another member of the value chain come in. When you look at Riverbend, that was one where now at that point, here we are six months from the first startup, we kind of have our legs underneath us. We really know what we're doing. So we we put together all the geology and everything we needed to do there. And then we approached Inlink and we had a great conversation with those guys because they have such obvious infrastructure. We said, guys, if we can put the space and the store and your infrastructure in one partnership and make sure that the customer base knows there's a solution right here. They don't have to take 15 meetings a day. They can they get an obvious answer. And so kind of pulling in the same thing with Howard Energy. You know, they are the obvious answer there. And so if you can find members of the value chain who want to partner in a project, divide up the economics to where it makes sense for everybody and have one offering to customer base, then I think you've got a better chance of these projects making. If we all have to cannibalize each other to figure out how to put emissions in the ground, this is going to take forever. And so, you know, again, alliances, you know, kind of help stretch our capital, gives a chance for those service providers to be in this and learn as we learn. Great. And you're going to hear more of those alliances, partnerships, really bringing something to the value chain with really the hopes of just accelerating all this because you're going to have to have those pieces put together. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about um, the, maybe the size of, of investment for a project like, like you're considering? And this is a coming from a bit of a selfish place as a service analyst, yeah. trying to figure out, you know, what the revenue opportunity is for, for the companies that I follow and just understanding too, how, how much differentiation there might be among those companies that are providing services. So, right. You have the Alliance with Technip, but there's several other companies that can provide subsea services and wellheads and trees and so forth. So maybe just talk to us about the invest dollars that could be involved and maybe how you would bucket how much goes into the actual subsea installation, how much is in the midstream piece, maybe how much is in, you know, further closer upstream to the, the point of capture. Sure, I'll jump in on there. So recently we just announced our our 2022 capital budget. And you'll notice uh, the CCS portion of Talos's capital investments for the year is roughly about 5%. So still relatively small. A lot of that is uh, continuing our, our lease, leasing work, the lease cost, and then drilling some of these stratigraph test wells that we've mentioned, uh, which we feel will be necessary for some of these class six permits. So again, trying to stay on that very quick line and staying out in front of uh, what we know will be the critical path item, and that's the approval of these class six permits. 
but it's trying to characterize a different project type. So if you've, if you've got a point source, again, you've got minimal midstream infrastructure that's needed for that. You're really talking more about uh, the, the, well, the injection wells themselves, drilling those injection wells, drilling the stratigraphic tests. And then hopefully you can reuse some of those wells for, or well, reuse that strat test for monitoring purposes as well. So we'll have some permanent bottom hole gauge, gauges to, to monitor, um, as well as use some surface technology. So those kind of projects are pretty straightforward. I mean, you can think of those probably in, in the tens of millions of dollars versus when you start talking about regional hubs, it's, it's, it's really going to just depend on the expanse there. And the good news is that it's scalable. So once you get kind of that back, backbone pipe site, then it's just the incremental emission you can bring on really helps, helps those returns, just, just like any other large infrastructure project. Um, so that's why getting that anchor emitter to underwrite the project with the you know a significant amount of emissions is critical for us. So we have yet to announce that, but as we talk to different potential customers, uh, that's that's kind of how we're thinking about that. Yeah, you know, uh, those kind of, of projects could lead into the hundreds of millions of dollars, just depending yeah. on how large and how many how many different sources and and then how many injection wells will be required. Right. Yeah, a couple ahead. things to think about. Uh, I mean, look, every injection well has got to be monitoring well, and as and as um, you know, Robin alluded to. We're going to pull some deep water technology into this platform, and it's really kind of interesting not to be too nerdy about it. But you know, this is a stratigraphic section at six to eight thousand feet below the ground. You know that we just ignored because we blew right through it. Why would I need to go really describe a bunch of wet aquifers that have nothing to do with my hydrocarbon extraction at 12, 13, 14,000 feet? But now we're going to go back and not only describe it, which really is you know kind of historical and gas guys, you're kind of laughing at yourself for describing aquifers because you're avoiding those at all costs typically when you're doing oil and gas stuff. But we're going to describe it, and then we're going to go drill another well, say a mile away, that's going to have bottom hole pressure gauges to really understand: Are we injecting in zone? Are we seeing a pressure build? So anybody involved in, and these are going to have to be probably bigger hole wells, different casing programs. So all the casing, all the cementing, all the bottom hole technology, all the valuation, all those folks are going to be in this amongst the service cycle. And just depends on, you know, where those alliances can fit. All the engineering design uh, and how we want to do the injection. You know, we do have on the oil and gas side, a project in deep water, which is one of the few water flood projects where we're injecting, uh, we're injecting water and we're not sourcing it outside the subsea environment. So we're very... You know, to, to say we're experts in subsea technology and subsurface technology, there's no doubt about that. So, you know, it's just a different, it's just a different type of uh, type of project and different type of work streams. And then obviously on the midstream side, there's a lot to do there. But it really comes down to the emitter. Most of the cap, you know, capital is going to be on the emission side, particularly when you get to multi-combustion plants, utility plants, things like that. But uh, but yeah, it can be. You know, for every million kind of metric tons, we're going to need an injection well and a monitoring well. So if we have a if we have a hub that we think is good can do eight to ten million metric tons, you can think about you know eight to ten you know kind of injection wells and another seven, eight, nine monitoring wells. So you can start to grid that out visually, and you can think about the capital that's implied just for the storage and monitoring. If I got to go ten miles, fifteen miles, you can think about the cost per, per mile on that. It adds up, right? It, 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 these regional projects. Are going to be very very you know kind of expensive and that's why you've got to have the right incentive structure for these folks to capture the uh, the emissions so that we can move them in a tolling fee type of structure maybe maybe just one on on that and then I'll, I'll turn it back over to david but in terms of the infrastructure and moving co2 around my understanding is co2 can be pretty corrosive to uh, like a natural gas pipeline and carbon steel what how much retrofit 
do you think we'll see to pipeline infrastructure for some of the projects you guys are looking at versus kind of a greenfield um, you know, construction just because of the difference, you know, different characteristics of the molecule? Again, we're describing saline aquifers, which we're avoiding uh, when we're doing the oil and gas stuff. Now we're talking about moving CO2, which generally we were avoiding as a corrosive. So we do have to adapt and we have to adjust. And, and Robin can talk, talk about how we do that in the midstream space. Right. I mean, it's a great question. And it really just comes down to if you think about design specs of pipes. And so if you've got some existing pipe that's um, already high pressure and has had CO2 through it, obviously there's an advantage there. Uh, so you're right, CO2 can be very corrosive with mixed with water. So one of the sort of pipe specs be to get this very dehydrated and really dry out the uh, water and trained in the CO2. So that components of the dehydration. The pipe itself, I mean, we've got to look at the different metallurgies make the wall thickness. And a lot of it has to do with trying to, uh, in diameter to get the CO2 up and underpriced supercritic. Uh, we like easier if it's moving more like a liquid state and it'll be easier for us to inject into the saline aquifers and then to dissolve the solution there where we can monitor that longer term. So those are the key things we're looking for. You know, the pipe in the U.S. is around the kind of 800 to 900 PSI. And we're talking for um, of a thousand PSI is what we're going to need for that supercritical state. So in some cases it'll be repurposing, in some cases it'll be reusing. In some cases it'll be some lengthening pipe and just being existing right away before we have that. But look, as Robin mentioned, it's it's new. We've been dealing with gas properties. We've been dealing with our whole careers. We just we thought about it in a different way. The level of which you need to trade it really depend on the pipe. You're typically it was mixed with other things and uh, it's really not because we're trying to inject that so we just have to think about the process differently again a lot of that's not technology from a transportation and injection perspective maybe on the regulatory side you talked a lot about before and we've heard a lot about from the industry on class six permits we discussed 45q earlier right now is everything overseen by the federal government how are states involved and, and what's under their purview, particularly in Louisiana? And what's your outlook on how difficult it's going to be to obtain some of these permits? Our background, you know, most of we operate on the west side, so we're controlled by the federal government. So, you know, we, we deal with Interior, we DPA, we deal with uh, Department. We deal with these folks all the time because, again, we're on federal land. We're familiar with you know, how the federal government can move. And, and, and when they're motivated, they can actually move pretty quick. And if politically or policy-wise, they're not as motivated, it can move a little slower. This is an area where I do think that the policy is aligned with everyone's objectives. And I do think this is one of the things that if we think about the transition, you know, we're electrifying everything could, you know, could be debatable. I mean, nothing is certainly inappropriate. Here's, here's the carbon capture, I think a lot of bipartisan support. So we're hoping that makes its way into having urgency around permits. But there's not a lot of history. Um, there's very you know, need to drill as well. Do you have enough information that you can describe reservoir and the, how it's going to be injected? I think there's going to be an iterative test early on. And so I think to really, you know, not everybody else is going to have to be in front of the government trying to move these things as quickly as we can. The states want to be involved, but right now it's a federal process. And so you've heard about the term primacy and will Texas be involved and be able to manage that process at the state level? Will Louisiana do it and Robin have some views? I think ultimately that might be the case, but I don't think it's going to be the case, certainly, you know, right away. Maybe maybe Louisiana can be a little closer than Texas, but really we don't, we don't know. Or in various other permitting 
you know, kind of regimes and permitting goal for these states to do it. I think they're doing it in Wyoming. You know, maybe we'll get there by the end of the year. But I would tell you, for us, you know, just saying, hey, look, that's a big gating item. It's going to take too long and we're not interested. The view is these are fairly complicated projects and we can get out and start working on it. And we're just going to have to take a little bit of that policy and timing risk and just get this thing moving. Or, or we're not going to be there when the customer is ready to make the investment on the capture side and be there. But um, it's going to be a lot of work on on the um, on kind of public policymakers and, and, and various government entities. But again, we're, we're familiar with it. I was just going to jump in and reiterate what Tim said, you know, today that regular regulatory bodies, the EPA for both our projects in, in Texas and Louisiana. Um, but as Louisiana has filed for that primacy, we're, we're hopeful we can accelerate that along and um, and that Texas will be right behind it where you've got these regular these state regulatory bodies like the Department of Natural Resources and the Railroad Commission that are much more familiar and more and better staffed to um, to issue these kind of permits, we do injection wells like saltwater injection wells uh, go through the state today. So we're we're hopeful that that'll that'll take place. And meanwhile, that we've got a lot of support um, from both from both the Biden administration and really bipartisan support and in support of these clean climate tech technologies, energy transitions. So hopefully to put the pressure that we've got enough staffing even at the EPA to help push these permits forward. Thanks, Robin. You know, Tim, you alluded to this, you know, before. Just perhaps the rest of the industry, uh, maybe it's just like a, a an area of ignorance or just the unknown, but the perception that you know class six permits are just such a hassle that I don't want to deal with it. I'm not going to get involved in this. You know, maybe maybe you can con- contrast. I mean, permitting for a deep water well and offshore Gulf of Mexico is not easy. Uh, so, you know. Can you contrast the experience in permitting for an oil and gas well that Talos has experience in versus permitting for a class six injection well and, and you know some of the different preparations involved with that? And you know, if, if you would balance one as being significantly more time conserved or challenging than the other, other than the obvious, which is there's not a ton of precedence for class yeah. six wells. Well, but, but look, it's it's a Good question, because what we do in deep water is extremely complicated. Before we go drill a well, the level of design work we do to show the government that what we think we're doing is safe, and, and particularly some of this coming out of the 2010 Macondo incident, you know, we do a lot of detailed calculations on what could be a worst case discharge. Uh, you know, we do just a really a ton of work, and sometimes that's iterative. We might present something, and they've heard something somewhere else, and they could ask a question, and, you know, we can say, look, we can look at that iteration and come back with them with more data, and, and so you get used to that, and that. Now, if you find something, congratulations, you got to put a full working plan together on the development side and think of a two-well subsea tieback that goes 15, 20 miles and 4,000 feet of water. What are all the characteristics of that? You know, what does the government need to understand? If you're putting in a new facility, the amount of testing and understanding on those facility designs, again, we're used to that. And it, But as Robin said, the group we're dealing with in Interior, uh, the BSEE, is a very mature organization. They're used to managing these permits. They're used to plowing through them. Um, and so you do have the right staffing and the right folks on the other side. So we're, we're totally prepared to get involved in the classics process. We're prepared to do whatever we need to make it work. If it's drill a strat well, if we have other data, and we understand the iterative process, but what you also need is, is enough staffing on the other side to say, hey, we're also familiar with it from a regulatory agency perspective. And here's how we, here are the questions we have. And if you can answer these questions, we're prepared to give you the permit. And so, you know, it's just going to be a little bit of a learning exercise and whether that stays with the federal government or moves to the states. But I think for us, 
we're comfortable in that space. We understand the level of organization we need to turn things around very, very fast. And it's one of the reasons we got into this. We're just used to working with that kind of agility and, and we'll, we'll manage that here as well. Yeah, one of the things that you need for a class six is part of a, it's called an NRV plan. So it's a monitoring, reporting and verification. So it's it's similar in the fact that it's it's, it's really kind of your development, how you're gonna handle this long-term and it's, it's all the technologies in our wheelhouse today, um, as far as some of the advanced metering, even the bottom hole gauges I mentioned earlier. So that'll be a, a big advantage for us, but also a, a piece that's gonna to have to go into these permit applications. Maybe we can touch a little bit on on the regulatory side on on 45Q and Robin, you mentioned the 45Q earlier. Now, how how critical is a 45Q upgrade uh, to your projects that you have in Q right now? And how do you view sort of the current 45Q standards as either being supportive or or you know an impediment to progressing? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, there, there, there are some subsectors within the different industrial bases that the $50 works today, but for many, they really need to see that enhancement in order to kind of make them make that decision that it's time to start capturing. Uh, so meanwhile, we're, while we are able to subscribe and, and start to talk to some customers such as like Freeport LNG where, where it works today, uh, the rest are you know they're they're getting prepared. They're he they're hearing the pressures from both their own shareholders and board of directors. They're hearing that yes, we need to decarbonize, and they want to look for solutions. But it's it's really about making that um, that that move, including the direct pay piece, that'll really allow them to make that call. So meanwhile, that's while we've been waiting for that, and we're still um, encouraged that since it has bipartisan support, that at some point it'll get through. It's, it's kind of given us a little time to, to get together, get these key partnerships and technical alliances in place and really build out our portfolio of stores and offerings uh, back to the customers. Um, and we're hopeful we'll get something passed that enhances those tax credits, um, some, hopefully sometime this year, but it's, it's hard to say exactly when. Yeah. You know, when you think about the projects, if you're gonna announce a point source, a couple of things probably have to happen. That, that that industrial partner probably has a bigger footprint of land than they really need. So maybe they their industrial process takes up, I'm gonna make up a number three, 400 acres, but they have 2000 acres of fence line. They don't wanna butt up to a school or a neighborhood or anything of that nature, right? And then they're on sitting on good geology and the current credits work. That's checking a lot of boxes, but if you can check those boxes, then there's no reason to wait. Why aren't we working on capturing these emissions? And let's just hurry up and get the permitting started, which is kind of how the Freeport project works. Once you start getting around ports and you start getting around bigger cluster of emitters, the chances that they have all those characteristics, all that excess land right around their property, is probably less certain. And so that's where the hub model is really gonna be the model that we need to make work if we're gonna do the most good of putting the most emissions in the ground and, and storing it and monitoring it. So the hub model, I think, is the biggest benefit model when we think about broad emissions, but it also is the one that needs probably the most help on 45Q because you're addressing as big of an emitter market as possible. So you know, to make the hub model work, which I think is the model that has to work, um, you're just going to need some policy help. I think you can do a lot of small things uh, from a point source perspective, and that's great. We should do those things, but it's really not going to put a dent in, in the issue. Absolutely. Maybe you can sort of characterize like the, the customer landscape right now. And, and you know, you talked about um, 
you know, there, there is a lot of available space at, at different industrial sites for build out and things like that. But it, this seems like if you're able to obtain the permits, if you're able to provide a bespoke solution, that this is like a very simple, like check the box, like, great, you guys go ahead and do this. And is, is there, you know, is there a resistance from customers, Robin? You talked earlier about you know announcing some anchor emitters and things like that. I mean, it, maybe if you if you can kind of encapsulate the entire you know customer uh, ecosystem right now and and maybe points of resistance or concern that's out there, um, and, and really how quickly you see this opportunity developing. Sure, as we're as we're going out having these conversations with our potential customer base, you know, we're we're hearing. You know various um, trends, and but a lot of a lot of it's really angled toward they know they need to do this. There's there's a desire to decarbonize their business, so it's just when is that trigger point? Um, and we know we're not the only shop in town. There's other folks trying to go out and do this. We've um, been very successful in getting some projects pulled together, making some announcements, and I think that's key. Again, it's about this this first mover advantage, this calculated speed, and having these bundled solutions. So the more we can come back to the customer with not just an injection store site, but also um, some midstream solution to get it there, the better off we're going to be. And, and if we can even bring in and suggest some, some other partners um, on the capture side too, I think that's helpful as well. If you've got some that are still considering how what capture technologies they want to place on their kit. So we're really looking at trying to find that complete solution. Um, meanwhile, you know, with the, the customers, it's, it's looking at who it, who it is? So it's great that we've um, that we've got a balance sheet as well. That we're we're one of the recognized leaders in the offshore space. So if you're talking about going to the GLO and being able to operate and successfully manage that, I think there's a lot of credibility and history there. You know, a big piece of this is operational assurance. So making sure that as we take the CO2 and we go and inject it, that it's going to be there permanently. We're going to be monitoring it for decades. So there's there's got to be uh, that that good space and and that understanding that we're going to be committed to that. And so as we go out and contract this, that's why we've talked about kind of a tolling model along a long-term offtake, if you will, from the customer, um, since we are taking on that, that risk and making sure we're, we can store it permanently. So this, it's just a little bit of a back and forth as everyone gets prepared and hopefully for some enhanced 45Q. Meanwhile, uh, definitely uh, progressing some conversations with some folks. You know, look, I think there's certainly... Some, some industrial partners and emitters are wondering, hey, can we do this ourselves and do it around our facilities? And, and I think what we're trying to do is just represent, look, you're going to want better operational assurance than trying to do that yourselves. You know, rely on folks who are in this space on this part of the value chain. Uh, but, but, you know, these guys are getting inundated with calls and with ideas. And, and that's why I think, you know, for us to make this work, we've got to pull together the right partnership as fast as we can so that the industrial emitter can say, hey, look, that you know, I can see it. I can see where that makes sense. I can see where maybe that's a better lower risk solution. And that's a good counterparty because you want to pull these guys in the one counterparty bundle. Um, and, and then let's go in that direction. Uh, but we get, we totally understand that you overwhelmness, if you will, that, that the industrial guys are having with the phone calls they're getting and what's going through their minds as they think about it. Absolutely. Um, you know, maybe that can get into the, the next portion of just um, maybe some of the milestones that you, you see ahead, uh, you know, for, for Talos as, you know, you progress this year and, and, and things that the investment community can kind of look forward to, to help maybe better understand story and, and, and some of the projects you're working on. 
Sure. So as I mentioned earlier, so the coastal bend announcement, that one is a lease option. So as we go out and explore, we've got nine months to kind of look at the reservoir and work with Howard Energy on potential plans there. So it would be pursuing and actually getting that to lease form. Same thing with the Jefferson County GLO, uh, get that lease fully executed. So that's, that's obviously first to have that buttoned up. Next is the anchor emitters. So again, trying to uh, trying to get those guys subscribed where we can announce that would be great. Uh, meanwhile, we're going to continue to advance these and from pre-feed into feed. So as we're thinking about that critical path item of the class six permit, we'll be out collecting all that information and data that we need to appropriately characterize that reservoir and propose that that MRV plan on how we're going to monitor these injection wells and our stores long term. Yeah. I think, you know, Robin talked about our budget earlier, where we have a, a potential store, we're going to go think about drill trat test this year, definitely on the Freeport acreage, um, you know, really likely potentially all of them. And so, so we want to get that ball moving. And then, you know, if you can see a Gantt chart, we've got a little bit of this, and I would encourage anybody listening to go grab our investor deck, because we talk about it in the appendix, or some timelines. It just really depends on what are the gating items. We know permitting is always going to be a gating item, but what else in parallel do we need to, to get the first revenue? And the point source is not a lot, right? It's really the permit and then let's get going. So that, that could be the first commercial injection on any project kind of along the Gulf Coast, certainly, um, you know, coming up and that could be as early as 2024. But then as you get into some of these other hubs, it's just how quickly can we get that anchor emitter? You know, Robin talked about that as well. And how can we spec out the pipelines and what we can use and reuse and what we may have to rebuild? And boy, there's so many moving pieces there. But, you know, I think we all want them to happen fairly quickly. Could it take four to five years for a hub to really start to show itself? That yeah, it might. And then the point sources can happen quickly. But for you, again, you know, deep water projects don't happen overnight. Stand timelines, understand kind of how to get to those timelines and how to work parallel streams. Um, and we just got to understand that there's just a lot of gating items and milestones that have to happen before you can get a revenue generated here. But when you do, it's a long-term revenue source and it's a bit of a yielding type of uh, investment. Yeah, last piece is real critical, but about project financing for these. Uh, various projects. So we, we want to get everything to a project FID ready status. So it's it's all the contracts, it's all the, the pre-feed and feed, it's getting that that class six uh, permit um, applied and then approved for and then securing the financing and then really getting after it with the construction and building this out uh, leading towards the first injection. Maybe for sake of asking an existential question, you know, to, to kind of wrap this up. I mean, you started with the genesis of, of how Talos got involved with CCS. And you know, now it's it's a couple of years into this this process. You're balancing a, a legacy oil and gas company um, with, that still had a number of prospects in the Gulf of Mexico and some different targets. That industry is, is very much calling for a return of capital model, right? Like a sort of a maturity model. And you have on the other side, this this emerging, growing uh, business opportunity with carbon capture and storage. I guess existentially, you know, are you finding yourself like, do you, do you think Talos has has sort of created the identity that it, that it wants? Is it finding the right sort of in investment community? Is it being looked at the way that you think, you know, Talos should be looked at right now? Um, yeah, and do you think that you're being welcomed properly into sort of this energy transition, you know, ecosystem? Yeah, hey, look, that's a that's a great question. I've, I've said 
quick answer is yes, because I'm at an equities conference. Uh, you know, we, Rob and I are both going to be attending several equity conferences in the next week. If you look at, you know, the meeting schedule, there's a lot of ESG and CS interested investors coming into the space. We, you know, look, we had some views on the stock in the 2021, one of our bigger shareholders who'd been in the stock over 10 years moved out of um, and that puts a little bit of a technical kind of, you know, cover on the stock. But I think now we're backed on the fundamentals. I totally understand where the paradigm shift has been on the oil and gas side from growth to value. You know, we're a small cap trying to become a mega trying to cap. And so I think as we drive down our cost of capital, as we get our leverage stat close times, and it was about 1.2 times before the pandemic. So it's always been very competitive. Uh, we're we're going to focus on that model. But we're still a company, again, three years public. And dare we say the word growth, but we're still growing this business. We think we're growing on the oil and gas side responsibly. You know, we think we're a natural consolidator. And I would tell you, for a lot of the majors who are thinking about decarbonizing their portfolio, part of that is selling oil and gas assets to what they think are responsible stewards. And one thing we're trying to show in this CCS business is we are responsible stewards of assets. And we can be the second owner of a midlife asset uh, for the majors as well. So there's a lot of duality here. I'm trying to build a responsible business and be a steward on the oil and gas side. And we're trying to take those skills and build a vertical platform on the decarbonized side. Um, and then we think both of those grow and come to a stable place. And then we're talking about returning some of that capital to shareholders. So we're probably in a little more of a transition than maybe a company that's a large cap. Certainly some of these bigger companies that went through a restructuring and they come out with a super clean balance sheet. Uh, but we'll, we'll get there. I mean, it's obviously where every company should aspire to be. Absolutely. Tim and Robin, I want to thank you for your time today. This has been a, a wonderful conversation for us. And you know, we're certainly looking forward to, to following all of Talos's successes in the year ahead here. That's well, great. It's great to have us. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.